You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. All right, welcome back to this episode of the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm Victor, and joining me is Daniel Aaron Dilger from WWDC. Good morning from San Jose. How is San Jose? Uh, it's quite nice. It got pretty hot, so no need to wear a jacket most of the time. Except inside the conference hall, some of them are refrigerated to the point of needing to put on the on the jacket. Wow. Well, at least they gave out jackets, right? Yeah, they they had uh, like a bomber jacket, and there's several different kinds. Each one has a different color. It's a similar print, but it's a different primary color, so it makes everybody kind of brightly a bright bunch of people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's not what listeners are here for, right? That's that's not one of our audiences talking about is the jacket because. What they really want to know about is is what the heck is going on there, right? We we saw this very very big cheese grater Mac Pro. We saw the monitor and the monitor stand, and a whole bunch of other things. So let's start talking about that. Tell me about the Mac Pro. Well, Apple took. I mean, WWDC is obviously for developers. It, it's where this whole conference of they're talking about what's new and their new operating systems. And the reason why the Pro was announced is hardware. It's, it's not common that there's hardware released. Um, but this is a product that Apple hasn't uh, updated again since since 2014, I think. And there were several years where it was the the can size, which I think everybody realizes was sort of a mistake. I mean, they, they created this product that was almost like a consumer product. It was, you know, it looked cute and everything, but it wasn't really expandable in the way that pro people needed wanted. And so here they're kind of coming back to the design that's similar to the aluminum Max that came out in what 2005 or 2003 uh right the, the old power mac the g5. g5 yeah yeah so it's a more modular design i mean it's more of a typical kind of pc type design where you have a tremendous number of slots <clears throat> huge amounts of uh expansion potential using pci you also have thunderbolt which is basically fun- pci in the form of a cable um so it allows you to do very powerful things uh that's that's apple's expansion uh Interconnected basically for the MacBook Pros, you can plug in multiple displays and all kinds of other things and RAID devices and everything. So you have both of those things on the Mac Pro. Uh, you have, a, you know, the memory architecture and the processors that it's using are, are they're kind of overkill for most people. They're they're very high end, and so it's also an expensive machine. Uh, but so they showed that off along with the monitor, which Apple doesn't really sell monitors anymore. But this is doing things that you can't do with most other devices out there. I mean. The, they kind of highlighted that there was no other device that hit all the checkbox that they wanted to deliver, and particularly for people who are doing 4K video. So it's, or, um, yes, working with any kind of high-end video and audio and um, working with tons of tracks. And so they're really positioning the Mac platform as being able to handle really complex tasks and workflows for professionals for whom the price isn't the primary consideration, it's, it's a capability. So this is not for consumers. You know, when, when consumers look at it, they're like, wow, $5,000 for a Macintosh to begin with, uh, and then, you know, it goes up dramatically. This is not for people, you know, doing Excel spreadsheets. This is for people who are making money with their machine. Yeah, th- this is so not totally iMovie, right? This is, this is something other than that. Right. I mean, Apple has their own pro apps, and they have a developer community of who make pro apps. And then there's other uh, developers that, in other ways, service people who are working in pro, pro professional environments like that. So it is relevant to developers, and that's why it was presented here, because they're showing that this is things you can do with our platform. And now, in the future, we're going to be building out this. This is not 
something that's going to sell in the you know tens of millions like iOS devices sell. Um, so it's a very different market. But it is important for developers who work with those kinds of clients or who themselves have really crushing workflows that they need to have huge hardware for you know recompiling software and uh, in huge huge environments where you're doing really complex things. It's the Mac Pro is relevant to them in both directions. Let me ask, there's there's a couple of things that stuck out to me as being interesting and unique there. Um, one of them was Afterburner, and the other was what looked to me to be extensions or modifications on the PCIe slot. Can you talk to a little bit about Afterburner? Afterburner is an optional uh, card that is a FPGA. It's basically a, it's basically a chip that can be programmed to do a variety of things after the fact. And so there, it's, it's a a specialized type of processor that lets you um, reprogram how it works. And so Apple is initially using it to radically um, speed up how fast it can do graphics operations. Um, I don't know what else. I haven't really looked at that really closely. I'm, I think there's a lot of machine learning kind of compute tasks that it can also handle. But um, what it really reminded me of was, if you remember the old NextCube, they had the Next Dimension board that just, it was, I think it was maybe more expensive than the motherboard, but you put it in and it just like raises the, the hardware capacity of the machine to just this incredible extent using specialized chips that were, had, you know, it was kind of brand new technology. It was kind of along those lines of you can put in, uh, you can put in sort of conventional GPUs or this is a, a special card that Apple's offering to really dramatically improve the performance of pro workflows. Now, it's interesting that you brought up Next because one of the other things WWDC is for is is all of the software changes for developers. And it, it sort of occurred to me that this is, is a seismic shift as a year goes, as WWDC goes, because it feels in a way like all of the things that were carried over from Next are going away. You know, there's no more interface builder, project builder, that that uh, the whole app kit UI kit shift that's taking place with Swift UI. Do, do you sort of understand what I'm asking or what I'm saying here? Well, um, yeah, conceptually, it's kind of the same thing, though, because a lot of what Next was trying to achieve, and remember, Next was the company that Steve Jobs founded after he left Apple in the mid 80s. So the late 80s, um, he called it Next because it was basically the next thing after what Apple was doing in the 80s with Macintosh. And so at the beginning of the 90s, they were roll out this computer of the future with an operating system of the future. And a number of things that it attempted to do was to make programming easier, to make graphics just tremendously more advanced where you're compositing on the screen instead of just working with bitmaps. And a lot of the things that, that it conceptually started are things that Apple later um, turned into Mac OS X. And they changed a lot of that too. They, they refreshed it because it was like almost 10 years later. <clears throat> and here we are 20 years after that. You know, Mac OS X is almost 20 years old. And so they're taking a lot of the ideas and bringing them into the future. So the interface builder, what, what it was, was a tool for basically generating code from a graphical uh, tool. So you lay out interfaces quickly and see how they work. Um, <clears throat> and at the time, it was kind of revolutionary. Uh, now it's, it's not, hasn't been for a while. Uh, and some of the tools that Apple's building uh, have superseded what it can do. But particularly what they're, what they introduced this year was Swift UI, which is a, uh, it's built upon the work that they've been doing with Swift, their new programming language that, you know, new, it's 
five years old, I think now, but they're constantly working on uh, developing a, a language that can handle from the needs of the future and also dramatically uh, reduce the amount of code you need to do a lot of things. Because the less code you have, the less opportunity you have for mistakes and less things you have to correct. So the the biggest demonstration they showed was for doing lists. And, and on, on Mac OS X, using um, conventional development tools it, uh, with Objective-C, if you look at Objective-C code, it's kind of difficult to read. Um, it, you have to very uh, specifically put things in a in a very verbose kind of description of how you want your how you, you want to build your interface with Swift UI, what it's doing is it's using the power of the Swift language to um, pare down a lot of the work that you're doing, so that not only does it require less code to do kind of simple things like laying out a a, a listing of things on your on an iPhone screen that you can interact with, but then it adds a lot of other functionality for free. So once you do this, you, you lay it out in this very descriptive way, then the operating system and the the framework underneath it is handling a lot of the work that they're doing behind the scenes already for things like dark mode, um, it, which is a lot more complicated than just turning black to white or inverted colors. There's a lot of thought that goes into the user interface in terms of like layers of how do you make, how do, how do you let the user feel grounded and understand what's happening in animations and, and all these kind of things. So there's a lot of complexity for if Apple just said, here's what we want it to look like and developers, you do it, then everyone's implementation would look a little bit different and it wouldn't be consistent. And it would be a tremendous amount of work for every developer to be doing. So a lot of what Apple does in terms of their platform is do all that work that's common amongst applications so that developers can focus on what they're trying to do. So they get things like dark mode sort of for free when they're building with Swift UI. And it also works, it it does um, things related to supporting other languages. There's a lot of developers who don't, you know, maybe they don't know Arabic and Hebrew and they don't understand what's involved with right to left languages. And so this is something that handles that kind of stuff for them. Um, so it's kind of a progression of, of what the Macintosh first delivered, and then what next kind of pushed ahead. And so now they're, you know, they're pushing the same kind of concepts ahead in modern ways using modern tools and the modern uh, languages. So conceptually, it's kind of the same. But yes, it is replacing in the same way that you know, QuickTime was replaced by AVKit and or AV tools. Uh, and everything that we kind of knew of as sort of a brand name eventually kind of goes away and is replaced by a, a modern version of what that was. One of the things that I was thinking when I saw Swift UI was the idea that the, the device becomes just another target. And, and so I was thinking about the possibility of being able to use Swift UI to write for the web, for example, sort of as a, as a sort of modern web objects kind of idea. I, I don't see that there's a plan to do that. Um, so part of the web is very useful in, in some ways that it, it's, you know, it's kind of obvious that what, how it, in ways it is useful, but it's also not useful in a number of ways. And one of the things that we've kind of learned is that when you write for the web, you're right, you're not writing for, you're writing for every browser anyone can ever think of. And as that changes, and as, um, you know, originally it was Microsoft, they kind of controlled the web browser and they introduced whatever they wanted to introduce. And then when there was more fractionalization between different browsers, it became more work to figure out how to do it. And then it was this effort to have all these standard bodies that were doing this thing together. And then you have somebody else saying like, hey, we, you know, we like working with a standard body, but we have a much better way to do this other thing. And so they, you know, that's what a lot of what Google is doing now with their browsers, kind of like establishing themselves as the new Microsoft where they're doing a lot of things that just don't work on other browsers because Google has done something that to support, you know, 
really complex web applications. And so the a lot of the open promise of the web is, is just not possible to deliver. Someone's going to be in control of it. And if you look at apps, a lot of what Apple is doing with apps is native, it's native code that's running optimized for a specific device. So on the Mac, it was like a yeah, Mac app is software that's designed for Macintosh. And it takes very optimized use of the hardware and everything on it. And it looks really nice. And that's the whole thing, you know, works like a Mac or has this Mac look and feel. Software for um, when iOS came out, they developed an entirely new kind of paradigm of, of software of how it interacts and everything that made sense on a small device and a touch interface. And they did the same thing, you know, on a little bit bigger scale with the iPad and added other features that only make sense on a device that's that big. And with the premise of the web is you could build something that looks great on all of them, but it doesn't. We already know that. Web apps don't look, there's a lot of disadvantages to using the web for going across platform because it's not optimized for anything. And so what Apple really established, they, they kind of turned back this thought that everything was going to the web. And Google, for example, is a very web company. That that's how they reach everybody is that they put it on a web interface. And there are some advantages to doing things like that. But for consumers in particular, and also for pro, pro users, there's tremendous advantages when you have something designed so that your hardware and your software are designed together to work together optimally. And it's not just trying to have some sort of open thing that it's doing in a web browser. So they're, they're very useful things you do on the web. But for most users, if they have a choice between a web app and a native app, they're going to choose the app because it works better. And there's a lot of things you can do in an app that just don't work really well on a, on a browser. And a lot of browser efforts are trying to make something that's basically so complicated that it, or, or so sophisticated and complex that it's becoming like an app, a native app that runs on a program. So a lot of the work that Apple's doing with its platforms are really competing with the web. So when Apple makes a tool, it's not making a tool to also put them on the web because the features, the, the things that they would have to do to make it work would also destroy the value of what they actually did to make it exist. All right. Thank, thanks for answering that. I know I was thinking out there a little ahead but, uh, and a little out there, but uh, it, it seemed like a thought because one of the things that we've talked about on this show in the past weeks have been things like Project Marzipan, which I, I think is now Catalyst. And, and trying to figure out, you know, are iPad apps coming to the Mac? What happens to what we traditionally think of as a Mac app? And how, how does this puzzle piece fit together? How does that work? So the, the framework for developing Mac apps, which has been in place since Mac OS X, is called AppKit. Or, yeah, it's called AppKit. And when they developed, when they basically turned, when they came out with the iPhone, the iPhone was basically Mac OS X in the shape of a mobile device. But instead of calling it Mac OS X, they gave it another another um, name. And they optimized a lot of the frameworks. So when you're building applications for an iPhone, there's certain things that just don't make sense from the Mac. So they got rid of those. There are things that make sense on the phone that didn't make sense on the Mac. So there are original limitations. And also, because they're doing all this work, they're, they're rewriting this from scratch, they can fix a lot of things that um, could be done better than they were on the Mac. And so there's a little bit of technology that washes back and forth, where they do something on the iPhone and they bring it to the Mac. For example, the animation kit that does all the nice animations for you when Windows move around and, th and things, that was brought back to the Mac. And then there's also things that were created on the Mac that have come to the iPhone. Now, we're now in in you know 10 years into iOS and there's been a lot of talk of how they're going to converge the two and make them the same thing and there's a number of reasons kind of like what we're talking about with the web that you don't want to do that there's 
there should be separate platforms. I, I would argue and they're even becoming ago, more separate right now with the introduction of iPad OS. Right. I mean, they kind of hinted at that before when they came out with, you know, TV OS and watch OS. And it's like, why do they have these different names? They're really just iOS, but they have optimizations. And the, the point of giving it a different name is that there's a different interaction model that's significant enough to where it, it kind of needs its own name. So that even though there's a lot of similarities, there's a lot of things that are exactly the same. Um, <clears throat> the way that you interact with a TV using a remote control is, is very different than if you have a piece of glass that you're touching, like an iPhone or an iPad. And with the iPad and iPhone, there's enough difference there because you have such a big difference in screen real estate that you can do a lot of things with drag and drop and kind of working with multiple documents next to each other that does, it's a little too cramped on a phone to make sense. And so, like you're saying, they're, they're making these different buckets so you can talk about them individually in a way that makes sense. Um, now, for iPhone and iPad, they have been similar enough that they were given the same name until this year. Um, and when you develop, when you're building an app, it's kind of another checkbox that you mark and you say, I want this app to also work on the iPad. And then you can customize things to your iPad app that make it um, make sense on an iPad. What Catalyst is, is another checkbox that says, I want this app that works great on an iPad to work on a Mac. It's not emulation. It's not hosting it in like a, a VM or something. It's not a simulator. It's, actually, it's, it's a real thing. It, right. So what, what, what it does is it takes your app, your, um, on, the, on iOS apps are built with UIKit, which is just the, the analog of um, AppKit. Right. And they're compiled for an ARM processor. Right. So what it does is it uh, builds that app for the Mac. And on the Mac side, they've built the frameworks behind it to support that. And additionally, when you when you create when you take an iPad app and you make it work on the Mac, which Apple first demonstrated on some of their own apps last year, um, and now they're doing it with things like podcasts. When you bring that Mac app to the Mac, it's a Mac app. It was built with a little bit different tools, but it doesn't make it look different. It doesn't make it behave different necessarily. It's not supposed to be different, and users aren't even supposed to notice. It's just an app that works on the system. Um, it was just built with a little bit different tools, and the way that developers create those apps is, you know, procedurally a little bit different. But it creates native apps, and so the point is, there are a million iPad apps that are customized for iPads, and a lot of those would make sense to bring to the Mac. However, because if you have a team, for example, Twitter, that has an iPhone app and has an iPad app, for them to build an, a Mac app before this year they would have to start over at AppKit and do things radically different. So it's a totally different program. It's almost as, I mean, it's not quite as much different as, you know, building an app for Windows. Well, it's actually a really good it, example. It's significantly different. It's, it's a good example. I was reading that someone looked at, at Twitter and they, they'd estimated that Twitter for Mac, when it was still Twitter for Mac, in its last release had something like 90,000 lines of code and that Twitter for iOS has something like 1.56 million that, that, that they've diverged that much from when they had a Mac app and an iOS app that were more similar. And uh, Yeah, anytime you have two different code bases, they, they're going to progress separately, and there's it's a totally different project. Yeah. And so what Catalyst does is it allows you to take the work, all these companies that have already put, invested tremendous amounts of effort into iOS. It allows them to take their work and make it into a Mac app that works like a Mac app. And they can additionally add on to it Mac features that are unique to the Mac, the same way that iPad apps have features that don't work on an iPhone because they're different, you know, different in scale and different in features and what they can do. And so with Catalyst, it allows teams that have like a, a an iOS code base to bring that to the Mac. So there's millions of, there's at least a million iPad apps that are already customized for iPad that a lot of those make sense on the Mac. 
And the alternative is you either have to start from scratch and build a Mac app, or you do the web, which is like what Twitter's been doing, on, um, and also Facebook. And you know, a lot of companies instead of building a Mac app, their their Mac solution is to say, "Here's a website." Oh, and, and I'm glad you brought up Facebook. There are a lot of disadvantages to that. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Facebook. I need to 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 thank our sponsors for a moment, and then I want to ask you about Facebook in in, in a context here. So you upgrade your smartphone, your TV, and your laptop, but when's the last time you upgraded your home Wi-Fi? The future of Wi-Fi is here. It's time to welcome Wi-Fi 6. The Netgear Nighthawk Wi-Fi 6 router gives you ultra-fast speeds and wider coverage throughout your home. It's the biggest revolution in Wi-Fi ever. You get four times the capacity compared to today's Wi-Fi, which means you can connect more devices and stream simultaneously without impacting Wi-Fi speed and reliability. The devices of today and tomorrow demand more. Your old Wi-Fi is timing out, and you need the latest and high-performance Wi-Fi that can keep up with you and your entire family. If you stream your shows on services like Netflix or Hulu, the newest line of high-performance routers from Netgear will eliminate buffering and let you stream smoothly, even in 4K. It's like giving your streaming the VIP treatment. If you game online, lag will be a thing of the past. Turn your Wi-Fi up to 6 with a Nighthawk Wi-Fi 6 router. Check it out today at netgear.com slash Wi-Fi 6. That's netgear.com slash Wi-Fi and the number 6. So you mentioned Facebook just a second ago, and one of the things that they announced was the the concept of sign in with Apple. Right. And so so the way that I understand that is that for years we've had sign in with Google and you could sign into a website with a Google account and they would use OAuth to go ahead and partner with Google or you could go ahead and cite in sign in with Facebook and sign in with your Facebook account to sites and they would essentially use your Facebook account as your account for that site. Why is Apple doing this? I think I know, but I want you to tell me. So the reason why applications do that is because there's a lot of cases where a company that's doing an app wants to have a relationship with you in some way, or they're saving information for you or whatever it is. Um, They want you to create a user account. And having everyone create a user account is both a lot of work for the developer because they have to manage it. And it's also um, something that, when users start into it, sometimes you're logging into something. It's like when you go to every web page and they want you to log in. It's like, I don't want to do this. Uh, I don't care about this website so much. I'm just going to like go somewhere else. Um, and if you're an app developer, the amount of people that come to your app and then walk away is a problem. So you want to make it as easy as possible for them to set something up so that you can minimally serve them. Um, and by using login to Facebook or Google, they've been tapping into their social network accounts so that... Uh, when you go to an app, instead of having to put in a username and all the stuff, and you just sign in with, with Facebook, and it takes you to Facebook and comes back, and it makes it easier for the user. However, the downside of that is there's a lot of information that the user has. It's not even clear how much information the user is giving up to, to log in. And we've seen a lot of abuse with, with Facebook and their partners and how much data they're moving around. And it starts to become a, a problem, not only for users who are like, what are you doing with this Facebook login, but also for apps because when a when a developer has you log in with Facebook, not only are it's back to the problem of if I'm logging with Facebook, it's like is that going to turn me off? Am I going to walk away? So it's it's like another you know suboptimal solution that um, creates privacy problems for the for the uh, developer. So Apple's solution is instead of creating a social network of its own, it's allowing users to log in using Apple with their Apple ID. But it's different from Facebook in that instead of handing this profile to the to the app developer, it creates um, sort of a token so that they can work with the user, and the user is also going to control of what they're giving them. So they can say, "Here's my name," or they 
they don't have to give you their name and they can say here's my email or they can say here's a here's a generic thing that will allow you to, to email me through apple and in the future i can just terminate that i can go into the to my settings and say i don't want to deal with this company anymore they're just spamming me all the time and you can just delete it and then that company can't message you anymore and and do they get a so, real email or do they get a a sort of generated one just for them if the user says they don't want to share their email it gives them a like a number with it's something like apple ford um at apple and so when um when they use that account to message the user and when they send that email apple forwards it back to that user so that they get it but the user has the control to say no more of those and delete it. They can also delete their whole account. So it gives the user um, uh, understanding of what they're actually sharing, what is gives them control of, of their personal information. They don't have a huge profile of data that maybe the developer is getting, not clear, you know. And it's also better for the user because they, or the developer because they're getting the opportunity to have a relationship with that customer. And if they're doing the right things, if they're providing a useful service, then the customer will want to hear from them. And then they can request other information from them and uh, build a relationship with that customer. So it, it really reduces friction for the developer. It creates more um, security for the user, knowing that they're not just randomly connecting another whole company to all their information that they have online about them. And so it's kind of a, a win for both sides. And as an alternative to social networks like Facebook, um, it's, like I said, it's better for the user and the developer, and it reduces the amount of information that's being spread around. And because Apple isn't hosting all this information itself, a lot of the things they've detailed about privacy is that Apple doesn't want the information. So Apple's in a unique position to be able to offer this kind of security because they really don't want your data. Um, Apple's making money on hardware. That's how they make their money. And so they can uh, offer security without worrying about... So Apple can offer that type of security um, because their business model isn't dependent upon it. When we were talking about you know smart TVs and all these other things, they don't make any money. Those companies are like barely making any money at all. And that's basically the case with tablets and for most companies, even with phones and with PCs. And so they make their money by having all this adware that's collecting data about you, TVs that you know report what you're watching and things like that. And a lot of people don't like that. And so, I mean, Apple's really playing that up as their, their angle. And that appeals to a lot of people because they don't want to have just like this huge cloud of information that, you know, might be construed the wrong way. Um, there's, there's a lot of problems that are, they're not obvious from the beginning. I see some of our readers will be like, Oh yeah, I don't, I don't care as long as it's free. Well, it's like, then you don't know the whole picture of what's going on. Yeah, there, <laughs> there is a cost. A it's just somewhere a lot else. More problems there. Yeah. So, but, but I can imagine that Facebook is probably not excited about this sign in with Apple idea, right? They're, they're, they're probably. Well, it's competing with their media, I mean, their ability to kind of control relationships with between developers and their customers. But I mean, I think we need to worry about Facebook. Yeah. They're making the, tons of money in ads. And I I am tempted every day to leave Facebook. I'm wondering what, what's keeping me there. Yeah. It, it is There are some social aspects of it that are, are very valuable, but it's just like the, the extreme cost of that kind of a system where just everything you say or everything you have online that's personal about you that you're trying to share with people is being shared with indiscriminately with everyone. And I really don't like that. Yeah. I, I went through a, a process where I deleted all of my archives that were there, like 11 years of stuff that they had that I'd posted. And I, I systematically went and deleted all of that. And then I blocked the news feed so that I was only seeing the groups that I was in that I'd specifically intended to follow. And then after doing that for a couple of months, I just went ahead and deleted the account entirely. 
Yeah, and that's for you know us old guys. Um, young people aren't using Facebook. <laughs> it's just young as people old. People are using a new set of apps. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's us old old parent age people. What, what do the kids um, use? Huh? What What are this? <laughs> I can't believe I uh, said well, that. Last time I checked. Last time I checked. I, it's been a while. Hello, fellow um, kids. <laughs> yeah. What are we using? Um, a lot of kids are using Snapchat, which I didn't really get. I've tried to use it, but. It, a lot of things that they're using, and of course, um, Facebook got into that and copied it to make stories for Instagram, and they were very successful in knocking that off. Um, one of the things that it seems that this younger generation behind us likes is instead of having sort of a permanent record, like I have this, I'm kind of a hoarder, and I just can't get rid of things. And I have, you know, I still have a, a Power Mac G5 <laughs> somewhere in a box. <laughs> I got rid of, <laughs> I got it has pictures rid of on mine. It, you know. <laughs> I got rid of the G5 and I got rid of the uh, the the G4s that I had around finally. But just the idea of, of keeping, holding on to things kind of forever. And, you know, yeah. when I was a kid, we didn't have the internet. You know, we had photos and you had boxes of photos somewhere. And today, there's such a wave of information that you... I don't think younger people are really as captivated with the idea of just having boxes of photos, whether it's literal or sort of online somewhere so a lot of the things that they do is share experiences and so both instagram stories and snapchat are all about kind of checking in with your friends and seeing what they're doing in real time and things that in ways that are more authentic because originally the idea of sharing photos and kind of instagram is sort of like look at me look what i'm doing but it's obviously kind of staged (laughs) it's it's not authentic you know it's like here here i carefully orchestrated something where i'm not even having fun but here's this beautiful photo yeah (laughs) i'm rich and i'm beautiful and you know i applied some filters to make myself look good uh there there are people that set themselves up as influencers you know the same way that there there are actual people who are called influencers who have sponsored products people go out and buy the products and then set themselves up to look like it to try and launch themselves into becoming influencers Right. It's absurd. I mean, that's, that's kind of a, a cycle of marketing that we've seen before, where initially the psychology of marketing comes in and, and it sways an entire generation. And then the generation behind them watches that occur and says, wow, this is really fake. You know, I don't, I don't need billboards everywhere telling you to drink Coca-Cola. I don't even want to anymore. And so advertisers have to keep, you know, changing their game because it becomes less effective to do the same things over and over again. And we're kind of seeing that with this idea of, you know, look at me, here's my beautiful photo of me in a fancy place with important people. And it's, I think there's a new, it, it's sort of kind of driven by a, a desire to have authenticity. So you're wanting to see not everybody, you're not trying to show off for everybody, but you're wanting to connect with your friends and show them, you know, hey, this is what we did. Here's what we're doing right now. Do you want to come and hang out with us kind of thing? Uh, and I think that that's not what Facebook is designed to do. Yeah. I think Facebook is trying to, to, you know, obviously trying to accommodate that as well, but Facebook is kind of turning into iTunes. You know how it was like the cool thing for a minute. And then it just became more and more bloated and bigger and huger and trying to do everything. And you're like, this isn't good at everything. (laughs) Oh man. So, so first of all, two questions, because, but I'm going to have to do them in order. So we have this Apple single sign on thing. How is Apple going to get developers on board with that? What's, what's, what's the requirements here? I think they make it mandatory for apps in the app store, which is part of um, like, if you're, if your app signs in with social, you need to add it and it's not hard to add and it's in the developer's benefit because users are going to want to have it. Right. If you're already so requiring has, Facebook, then you have to also require sign in with Apple. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, they have a lot of leverage to, to make it 
popular among on their platform because they control the gates of the walled garden. You know? Yeah. And that's also an issue people have been talking about is, you know, what should Apple have so much control? And that is an interesting question. I want to write more about it. But one of the things that I've been thinking about recently is the alternative to one thing being in, in control is something else. So if you don't like Apple being in control of apps, which there's valid reason. I know a lot of developers who are, you know, irritated that Apple stepped into their territory after, you know, letting them develop it. You're talking about something like um, being Sherlock? Yeah, the, the, the Sherlocking, yeah. That would be very frustrating. However, at the same time, the alternative is, um, what if you don't have an app store? Or what if you don't have a company that's in charge of an app store? Then you have something more like Google, where everything is just on fire and chaotic crap, and you can't build upon it. And you can't, there's no business model. All you can do is put ads in your app or track people. There's no way to say, here's an app that's useful and you can pay some significant amount for it and I can make money and you can have something that you really works for you. That doesn't exist anywhere else. And so we can take the power away from Apple, but who who gets it? Do we give it to somebody else? Do we do like we did in the 80s and give it to Microsoft? Because Microsoft did a worse job. Um, so I think people should think about the alternatives. You know, it's really easy to come up with solutions to say, hey, shoot the rich, but then who's who's next, you know? Well, you'd mentioned iTunes a minute ago and, and how iTunes had grown from being doing one thing well, rip, mix, burn, to then synchronizing iPods and, and then synchronizing iPhones and iPads and then apps and movies and, and pretty much had become this bloated do-everything kind of app, right? Right. So what's happening with it? So it's kind of surprising Apple didn't do this earlier, but um, they're taking a lot of the, the features of iTunes that were kind of there because it was cross-platform. Um, so to have kind of a, a similar experience across Windows and the Mac, they had to put all the iOS stuff into one place. And now they're deciding that that's not important. So the Windows thing is kind of staying the same. But on the Mac, it's becoming a little better organized so that uh, some content that you work with differently. So the way that you listen to music is similar conceptually to what you're doing when you listen to podcasts or to audiobooks, or even when you're listening to the audio portion of TV or or whatever, but those things have, we, we, we interact with them differently. So we kind of listen to music in the background and we stream music from Apple Music or some people still like to buy downloads or rip their CDs. Those are all kind of conceptually similar in how we appreciate music. TV is more of a sitting down watching something while it's happening. It's intentional. And so, yeah. And so the, the way that you choose what you're going to watch and all those things are different. So the, the browsing system is different. And how you want to discover things is different as opposed to music. And it's the same thing with books. I mean, you, you, the way you appreciate an audio book is different. And it's, it's more similar to a book that you're going to read. And podcasts are also have like their own way of interaction. Um, and so by putting them into separate apps, they can not only make the experience con more consistent across the platforms. So you have a podcast app that um, makes sense across for everything from an iPhone to Apple TV to your computer. Um, it also uh, just simplifies a lot of things. And then specifically on the Mac, because you're pulling some types out, they also say, hey, let's let's take the device stuff that works like a drive and put it into the finder where it belongs. So when you plug in your phone in or, or an older iPod device, it works like a drive would. And it puts up the same interface that was in iTunes before. You know, you put it in and it says, here's your options for handling this. It looks kind of identical from what I've seen. I haven't worked with it extensively but so it's kind of more of, of just moving things and that's an example of what they're doing with uh, apple music is basically still itunes that they give it a modern name to indicate that it's different because it's, now it's based around apple music subscription but you can still use it with the 
stuff that you had before and you can still buy music and you have the option to either show or not show the iTunes store in the sidebar. So if you're using Apple Music, you might not care to do that unless you're trying to look up reviews and things that are unique to the, the download store. So we're not so actually really losing kind of any functionality harmonizing. here, right? Um, I don't think there's anything that actually has gone away. Okay. So think about that for a minute. but I mean, that's that's been one of the concerns. People were worried. People contacted me saying that they were worried that they weren't going to be able to continue to buy music. People contacted me saying that they were worried about things like like Apple taking over their music collection, like uh, you know, they'd, they'd heard years ago with iCloud Library, well, iCloud Music Library, where, where they'd have a version locally and it would get synced and then their version would get lost kind of thing. You know, pe- people are really concerned when you mess with their music. Well, I mean, part of that was because it was reported wrong by a lot of companies that they heard something about, I, you know, Apple was going to stop using the name iTunes. You know, they stopped using the name iPhoto too. They now it's photos. And instead of calling it tunes, they're calling it, song, you know, music. Right. Um so it's not it's not really that crazy of a change, but uh, they immediately kind of jumped to this conclusion to, to ask all these questions, and a lot of it was because it was presented wrong by the media. Instead of asking, figuring it out, they they tried to create this sensational headline, and this is not the first time they've done that too. I mean, I remember over the last couple of years there was this thing of like Apple's going to kill downloads. It's like no, they're not. <laughs> they've not indicated that at all. Um, Apple would much rather you sell sell your downloads than Apple Music. They're making more money with downloads, I think. Okay. If you buy a lot of downloads. So, um, yeah, I mean, a lot of it was just one of the biggest problems that we have is just journalism is now based. I mean, it's not even journalism, but it's online writing is just based around getting people upset. It's not really to inform them, it's to upset them because that drives ads better. Right. Let know? me put out a really, really fearful, fear inducing headline so that everyone reads my <laughs> clicks through to my article and it doesn't matter what's, what's exactly. actually right or not. Yeah. You know, yeah, there's a lot of articles that you know have some like scandal headline. They're just like, "What?" And then you read it, and you're like, first of all, you didn't answer that question that you dramatically posed, and second of all, it doesn't really have anything to do." And part of this is not even the writers. <laughs> Sometimes you write an article and they put a headline on it that's like, "What?" Yeah, <laughs> you know, you're trying to boost the yo. You're just making me look like a jerk. Yeah, no, I and I know people that that these things leave lasting impressions. You know, I know a person who will only buy MP3s from Amazon because they're afraid of buying music from Apple. Because they're afraid that it will get uh, DRM'd. Never mind that DRM hasn't no, been a thing in what ten years. It doesn't make sense, but yeah, <laughs> I know it doesn't yeah. make any sense. Except that we know that that once someone's taken on board this this position or, or read the article or taken the fear mongering, it sticks with them. Well, if you look at other companies, I mean, um, Samsung's Milk and Microsoft is on it for a couple of platforms where they just said like, "Hey, this isn't working out anymore, so we're just going to dial it down and it's going to go away." So kind of like what. Um, who else did it? There's been a number of companies that were just kind of like, hey, we're changing our business model. So like Flickr with their photos. Yeah. It's like, hey, we're going to, we're not doing this anymore. <laughs> this whole free thing didn't work out. Yeah. And so when, when people get burned a couple of times, they're, yeah, they're probably thinking like, is Apple going to do that? And uh, yeah, I have thought about like at what, po- what point will Apple keep supporting, you know, iPods from years ago, but iPods are actually pretty simple. I mean, it doesn't require like a tremendous amount of effort to. I mean, they're, make it they're a mass storage device with an iPod library on it. It's not like it's a big deal. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I've I've revived a number of those. I put uh, flash drives in them, and I've got everything from the third generation forward still syncing with iTunes. But outside of Apple, I mean, you know, PCs were always kind of a thing that there are. A lot, Microsoft has worked really hard to make Windows work on everything kind of forever, with some limitations, but. Um, a computer gets to a certain age and just can't do things anymore. 
or can't do modern things anymore. And with mobile devices, it's even worse. I mean, like most of the world's phones are Android phones that can't get updates after 18 months. Yep, or sooner. That's why there's, <laughs> that's why there's so many being sold. You know, they talk about unit sales, and it's like, well, of course, you know, everybody has to replace their phones. That right, can't be they, don't, they don't address the churn in that figure, right? Right. And so that's why a lot of people, you know, they look at the numbers. For example, iPhones being sold in China, you know, Apple only has this like 17% market share or something. But their share of the phones in use is actually leading. You know, it's like neck and neck with the biggest producer in China. Um, so a lot of those statistics that are being presented are not really, that's more examples of. They're, they're know, not as informative as they could be. Yeah, let's come out with something that's shocking as opposed to accurate or, you know illuminating what what would you say is the biggest takeaway so far from wwdc the biggest takeaway yeah what is what has been the biggest change that you've seen what do you think is going to have the biggest impact down the road well as opposed to like a big change there's a lot of incremental things that are happening and every year there's incremental things and sometimes you look and you're like why are they doing that and then the next year you're like oh that's why they did that and so a lot of things that, like one of the things that I was talking with a friend yesterday about was ARKit. And they're like, why is Apple doing all this work for ARKit? Um, you know, they put, they're rapidly iterating on it. Like every year it has very sophisticated new features that are pretty incredible. Like the whole, you know, person occlusion where a person can walk through a 3D scene and the graphics are just like clipped behind them. I mean, it's magical. Um, why is Apple doing this? And it's kind of clear that, Apple's not doing ARKit just so you can have apps on your phone. There's going to be glasses or, or there's going to be windshields or, you know, there's so many uses for ARKit and other things that have not been released yet. Yeah, this is this is deeper than so, just the IKEA catalog, right? <laughs> right. And at the same time, uh, one of the th interesting things that, they, that was mentioned uh, was that developers who are using ARKit in the most kind of the most obvious thing, like you're talking about with IKEA, some of these partners that are building things where you can take a, a model and put it in your home and see it realistically they are boost sales by 300 percent. if somebody can place an object in their house then they're like yes i'm, I'm confidently going to buy this as opposed to i'm not sure my uh years ago my uncle ran an art gallery that sold art and and he would frame it and he uh he did this thing where he would loan it out to you you came and you wanted to buy something great they'd put it in your home you'd try it for a few weeks just to see that it fit fit with your lifestyle and stuff and then you'd buy it for that very reason. Yeah. And so for, for, for big companies or, you know, for any company to be able to implement AR and get a benefit back from it, that's what moves technology forward. If you can find a way to make it useful and a way that pays for things, there were a lot of things that Apple did in the nineties, you know, with QuickTime VR. Um, it wasn't really clear what the use case was. They tried to find some, you know, it's like, here's, here's a way to like go through a house that you might want to buy. I remember the uh, um, Volkswagen new beetle. They had a QuickTime VR movie for it, and you could pan around the Beetle and see the dashboard and stuff. Right, and it's kind of similar to ARKit in the sense that it was allowing you to explore 3D objects or worlds. Um, ARKit is basically just taking that and, and syncing it up to the camera so that you see this um, 3D model in real space, in a, a real environment. Um, but they've worked, they've kind of established a better way to sell it. So a way that people are actually going to use it in a way that makes sense and people want to use it. And of course, they also have, you know, a billion devices out there as opposed to back in QuickTime VR, it only worked on Macs and kind of struggled to work on anywhere else. And one of the kind of interesting things is Google figured out a way to use some of the ideas that Apple was working with with QuickTime VR, where you could take 
you can make a node where you you look around 360 in a panorama, click a button, go ahead to this other space and and see another node from there. And you have it's basically a movie that's not linear. So instead of looking at a film one frame at a time along a film strip, you're able to kind of look at frames in a movie and then jump to wherever else you want to go. So it's kind of like hyper card for the for video. Um, so the idea of panoramas and looking at models and looking at things over time, Google translated that into Street View. So now you could be in a map, you could look around, you could click over there and look around from there. And so they made a, a, a valuable use case that people could do that with. So now Apple is doing that now. They're taking their own technology and they're building it with, you know, they're they're now 10 years past where wherever whatever time it was that Apple, Google started with Street Maps. So they're using a lot more advanced technology, you know, using LiDAR and planes and stuff to basically create a street level version of flyover. So now you're in the model and you're not just looking at photos, you're looking at actual 3D, you're looking at surfaces. They have a 3D representation of the earth. So when you're walking along, you're seeing buildings that, that have a 3D texture applied to them of the building. Pretty incredible. It is, it really is. And it's it's new imagery, so so I'm excited. I'm excited about maps changing, and they're it was pretty aggressive that they're going to finally get the modern maps across the entire United States this year. That's cool because it seems like it's kind of been moving slow, but you know this is a lot of work to model the entire United States maps, building at a time. Maps is a big undertaking, and it's been a big undertaking for anyone who's tried to do it. And uh, you know, it's and again, Apple has probably another reason for the future for maps. Well, I whatever they're doing with vehicles. You know, that's going to be really kind of key with when you're to have your own map. So Apple is developing a lot of technologies that right now aren't quite so obvious what the reason why they're doing it, but in the future it's going to be more obvious. All right. Well, I, I don't want to keep you because I know you've got things to get to. Where can people find you on the internet? Well, I'm writing for Apple Insider. I have my articles up on Roughly Drafted, and my Twitter is Daniel Aaron, E-R-A-N, at, at, at Daniel Aaron. Great. I'm at VMarks on Twitter, and we will be back next week with more. When's the last time you upgraded your home's Wi-Fi? Turn your Wi-Fi up a notch with Netgear's new line of Nighthawk Wi-Fi 6 routers. Whether you're gaming online or watching Netflix in 4K, it's like giving your streaming the VIP treatment. You'll enjoy buffer-free streaming and zero lag no matter how many devices are connected to your network. Upgrade your router at netgear.com slash Wi-Fi 6. Make your Wi-Fi feel young again.